Welcome to another episode of Harvest Series, a podcast following a four-day experience in Kaplankaya on the southwestern Aegean coast of Turkey, filled with fascinating talks and workshops to harvest knowledge and nurture the planet, an event produced by Athena Advisors and Capital Partners. I think that most climbers who are alive, and many who are not, climb because of how small it makes you feel and um, how insignificant. You know, when you're standing on top of Everest, you realize you are just a speck of dust in the cosmos. And it's the most incredible, really an addictive feeling to be that way. But people who don't climb and people who read who are addicted to sensational stories like to try to figure it out you know it's the armchair athlete and um, this writer wrote for that person and there's a, a lot of them in the world and he wrote a best-selling book still the question was who is to blame for this and he blamed me i am rose a french journalist based in barcelona and this episode is an interview made in caplancaya with sandy hill a sportswoman and intrepid traveler who has visited more than 135 countries, climbed the seven summits and reached the top of Mount Everest within three attempts. She's been climbing since she was nine years old. In this episode, she will come back on what happened 27 years ago. At the top of Mount Everest, a deadly storm started to hit. Although Sandy's team survived, many people perished that day. And a book pointed to a woman, Sandy. She went through depression and will share her story for the first time in a podcast. How she almost died physically and then socially. Sandy is not sharing this to be in the spotlight again. As you will understand, she and her family suffered enough from this. But she hopes her testimony will help people. When the, the sun rose in, uh, while we were all on ascent, into a clear sky and it was just a bluebird day and even until we until very close to the summit it was quite clear but the last hour we could feel a wind coming up but of course we weren't really looking down the hill we were looking up the hill but when we were on the summit and turned around and looked down you could see that what the storm was doing was welling up from below so as clear as it was looking up it was what was below us that was going to present the danger so we didn't spend very long on the summit it was 15 minutes i think we have one team photograph and it's a, like a haphazard clump of humans and then that was it and we all started our descent. The descent usually takes four and a half hours, that's a normal pace, to travel two kilometers down the hill. But three hours into the descent, it was very quick. It was total whiteout. By total whiteout, I mean it was like swimming in a glass of milk whiteout. You couldn't, you maybe see from me to you, but not much farther than that. Uh, it was really a total whiteout. And then as the sun set, so this was around six o'clock at night now, as the sun set, the wind picked up to 100 kilometers an hour eventually, making it practically impossible to walk. So before the whiteout, we actually had the tents in sight. 
it was far, the the tents that were our destination for that night. The tents where there was water, there was food, there was warm sleeping bags, and there was more oxygen. So we had stashed them there at midnight the night before. So now we're working on close to twenty four, eighteen hours, let's say, without without any resupply of food or fuel or anything. And our oxygen was depleting, if not already depleted. So, because you only take so much oxygen as you need. So uh, we were together as a group. We were walking together as a group and we, we lost sight of the tents because yeah, I couldn't see, no one could see any farther. No. We thought we had the right direction and we walked in that direction and we didn't bump into the tents. So we did what's logical, which is to walk in concentric circles, whether we were actually walking in a perfect contemplative concentric circle line, uh, one will never know. We stumbled around arm in arm in this hundred mile an hour, or hundred kilometer an hour wind, but knowing full well that it was possible to fall off the edge of the area that our tents we're, we're on is called the South Call, and it's actually an area between Mount Everest and, and Lhotse, its companion mountain. And there's a little sort of the crotch between the, those two peaks is where we had our tents pitched. It's the area of like a couple of football fields, max. Okay. And having climbed up the other direction with a 10,000 foot drop down only two years before, I knew how steep that was. You're falling 10,000 feet into Tibet and it really does fall off like walking off of a skyscraper. So we, we all were aware of this. So it didn't make sense to just keep walking and walking and walking. We weren't finding the tents in any way. Walking became increasingly difficult. So we decided to huddle for the night to just lay in a dog pile and through squirming around and like taking care of each other, we would get ourselves through the night. So we did that until we hoped that there would be a break in the storm. And there actually was around four o'clock in the morning, there was a break in the storm. And a few of our members were able to run to the tents, which I would later learn was only 50 meters away. Okay. Ironic. Yeah. Um, but I was not with that group. I was with two other members of our group, but those people were able to direct somebody to help you to help us. So Anatoly Bukriv, who is n now passed, he died in a climbing accident on um, Annapurna a couple of years later, but just a, an incredible, like one of the great climbers of all time in my lifetime hero, came out into the night to find us. And he he did, and he brought us back to the safety of the tents. And it's amazing, like as soon as you get a little, little warm beverage and some warm sleeping bag and little oxygen, how quickly you're restored. So, so for me and my team, we all survived to, um, we all survived the night, but it did become the deadliest night on Mount Everest. Um, eight people lost their lives in the storm, including people that were very close to, nearby us in the huddle. They weren't on our team. One woman was just two and a half meters away from us and she'd been abandoned by her teammates and she perished alone. Another man did walk off the, the edge, so our, our fears were not unwarranted. And actually the leader of our expedition, who was not climbing with us that day, but he was technically the leader of the expedition, 
He was doing something on his, he was taking pictures on his own. He also lost his life. He was stranded above the storm and couldn't make it down. So I never know how to define these things, near-death experience. I mean, I've always thought like, either you died or you didn't die, you know? Maybe just driving your car these days is a near-death experience. One never knows, but that is actually a valid way I've come to understand. Life is a near-death experience. And so over the 27 years that it's been since then, it's given me a lot of time to contemplate the thin line between life and death and to to embrace the possibility of death. And as a result of it, my life has become much richer. The 1996 Mount Everest disaster was at the time the deadliest expedition, as eight climbers died caught in the blizzard while attempting to descend from the summit. A disaster that raised questions at the time about the commercialization of Mount Everest. As Sandy stopped that day, Frozen and without seeing anything before reaching the tent, I asked her if she had always been conscious before being rescued. I wasn't always conscious, no. Well, I would later learn the technicality of what happened to me, but people do always ask me, what is, what's it like to believe that you're about to die? But I didn't think that I was about to die because some crazy cocktail combination of my hormones kicked in that caused me to hallucinate. And um, I actually hallucinated that, well, this is while we were in the dog pile, I hallucinated that we were not in the middle of a blinding, debilitating snowstorm, but we were act- I was actually sitting outside of a Tibetan tea house. And there are no Tibetan tea houses at 8,000 meters, just for the record. <laughs> and, but I could see it very clearly. It was, it was just like over there. And I was sitting on the grass in front of the tea house. It was a little chilly outside, but it wasn't too cold. And there were lots of people inside and and they were serving tea and there was a warm fire inside. And I, and I thought, I, I'd like some tea too. I, I, that would kind of warm me up, you know, but I didn't feel like I was freezing to death, okay. um, which I might well have been, but I just felt, you know, you felt that way, like a, a little cold and you'd like a little cup of tea to hold <laughs> in front of you. So I was trying to get the attention of the waiter And who knows how much time I spent doing this, but waving my hand, you know, that feeling when you can't get the attention of the waiter and he's right there. Well, I mean, it's a little frustrating, but you think like, it must be me. I don't know, whatever, but but he'll eventually notice me. And so I was like, waiter, waiter over here. And I'll never know if that was what me calling the waiter was what actually enabled Anatoly to find us. It's occurred to me. And he and I remained friends after the expedition. I, I don't know if I really ever asked him the question, if it was the, you know, me calling for the waiter. But the amazing thing is he did bring a thermos of hot chocolate. Whoa. Uh-huh. <laughs> so so um, anyway, so that, uh, yeah, so I hallucinated. So the lesson that that 
taught me. And believe me, this was not like a thunderbolt lightning strike of a lesson. It's, you know, I've had 27 years to ruminate over this. But the lesson that it taught me was a lot about control. So I would have called myself in my 30s and 40s control freak, which used to be a compliment. Because like everyone thought that unless you were a control freak, you couldn't get things done. And I was a master of getting things done. (laughs) And I had my little checklist every day and I would always have everything checked off. And I was just sure that my life was unfolding in the amazing, positive, wonderful way that it has because I was in control. You know, if if I hadn't hallucinated, if the, the hand of the divine hadn't intervened and flooded my brain with the dopamine and that, that it did to cause me to hallucinate, I might well have been the one that was saying, okay, guys, let's do this. Let's do that. You know, making a plan. But unwittingly, yeah, I accepted this situation, which like sitting in front of a tea house and not able to get the attention of the waiter isn't that bad. So I wasn't hyperventilating. I wasn't crying and saying, I don't want to die and, you know, or organizing this way. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a preservation of energy. There was really nothing you could do about it. Like Mm -hmm. nothing. You couldn't walk. We all had all the gear that we had. We were taking care of one another. We shared the little resources we had. It was really, at that point, just a a toss of the roulette table, whatever was going to happen. So unwittingly, I didn't control anything. And afterwards, I do remember thinking, like, gosh, like, how did this happen that we all survived? And I didn't, like, I didn't organize anything. I, you know, just, like, it happened this way. And I wondered if that wasn't the reason. And I... I think there are other reasons too, like the fact that we were an incredible team together and everyone, the circumstances weren't a steady downhill trajectory, like getting worse and worse and worse. Some people felt buoyant while other people didn't. And then the buoyant ones started to tank and the the ones that had been down started to lift. So it was like this. So that was a great factor that we all stayed together. So you experience an almost physical death, but you also mentioned a social death. Yes. So there was a writer that was on the mountain that night and uh, he was on a different, he was on the other expedition and I didn't know him really at all. I knew of his reputation. I admired his writing actually. When we came down from the South Call, we were met by a storm of a whole different sort. There were reporters that had flown in from Kathmandu by helicopter, all over base, swarming all over base camp. So it was quickly the story of the minute. And later, every newspaper in the world would carry a story about it. The New York Times was above the fold. It had a couple of, that's when newspapers used to be published actually mm-hmm. on paper and it folded. And so it, it was a sensational story. And the writer that was on the other team was called to write a, a sensational story about it in which like everyone who wasn't there felt an, a need to answer the question, who is to blame? for this. Now, climbers know that one of the reasons that we go to these big places is because you're in awe of the mystery 
of the place. And there's no blame. Nature is what nature is, you know, and and it's bigger than us. You're not standing on top of the world, thumping, you know, on top of the mountain, thumping your chest and saying, like, I've conquered this mountain. That's that's what people who don't climb think about climbers. But I think that most climbers who are alive and many who are not climb because of how small it makes you feel and um, how insignificant, you know, when you're standing on top of Everest, you realize you are just a speck of dust in the cosmos. And it's the most incredible, really an addictive feeling to be that way. But people who don't climb and people who read, who are addicted to sensational stories, like to try to figure it out, you know, it's the armchair athlete. And um, this writer wrote for that person. And there's a, a lot of them in the world. And he wrote a best-selling book. And uh, still the question was, who is to blame for this? And he blamed me. It was a scathing depiction that he made of me. I believe that he was motivated by selling books and you know, a capitalist impulse, if you will, turning this tragedy into his personal bounty, I guess, which was something I couldn't do. I also was, am a writer and um, I had a book contract and I had magazine contracts and other obligations after that, but I felt like I couldn't write about it. I couldn't speak about it. First of all, I was deeply grieved and I was in such awe of what had happened that no words came to me, but it also seemed like capitalizing like blood money. So that was antithetical to me. That's not how I, I don't roll that way. I, my stories are mostly, I hope, uplifting, even when there's not a summit involved, you know, there's, there's a lesson to be learned that is uplifting at the end of everything. So, so writing about the tragedy and capitalizing on the sensationalism wasn't for me. Anyway, he blamed me and he painted a portrait of me that was not true, not accurate. He was, was very, is still a very skilled writer, but he said absurd things like implied that I had brought a hairdresser to base camp and that I had a cappuccino maker at base camp and in subsequent movie depictions of the tragedy there's an actress portraying me and she's rudely directing her Sherpa to hump up this like five seater, you know, cappuccino machine, like you see in an Italian coffee bar. Which was when, far from truth. Uh, well, in fact, um, I did bring a coffee pot and it was the kind that you probably use or almost anybody uses on a camping trip, which is those little aluminum mocha machines, you know, that percolate from the bottom up <laughs> and they make stronger coffee than, I mean, yeah, you can make it over a fire and it's and like that. the only one to do that. So and, yeah. and so he must have derived this, you know, back in the nineties, coffee, fancy coffee was like a new thing. Starbucks was relatively new. Okay. So it, you know, fancy coffee, if you call, call Starbucks fancy coffee, but we, that was the fanciest coffee. So it was a thing. And, and coffee's always a thing with climbers. Like everybody's, there's a couple of, one of my best 
climbing friends, his nickname is Java because he's got to have coffee before he's going anywhere. It doesn't matter what time of day or night he has to get out, but he has his coffee. So anyway, so uh, me being me, um, tried to elevate our coffee experience. So this is what this is my recipe for cappuccino at base camp. You take a mason jar or your lidded coffee, you know, coffee thermos or anything, and you put the coffee in, and then you take powdered milk from India because it's the Indian powdered milk is a high fat powdered milk. So it tastes actually like milk. You know, it's got like a mouthfeel. And after you've combined the two, then you shake it really hard. Mm. (laughs) And so it's got foam and then you pour it into another cup and you say in a very elevated tone to somebody, good morning, would you like your cappuccino? Okay. So it looks like that. Okay. <laughs> That's my recipe for cappuccino. And that was my cappuccino machine. Okay. It's this. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's not there. <laughs> no. Okay. But rather than finding out the truth of it, it made a better, because you didn't interview me, so it made a better story to talk about my cappuccino machine instead of finding out what really happened. But today you want to be clear that you don't carry the responsibility of the other teams, uh, no. like the press no. said. No, I time. don't. Um, he even went so far out on a limb as to suggest that the storm was brought on by the wrath of the mountain gods who were vengeful over my love life. I mean, that just requires so many moving parts to wrap your head around. So he placed the blame on my shoulders for the storm, for excess at base camp. There were many other examples. So the social death that I met was, uh, first there was a magazine article that was just scathing. He published for Outside Magazine a couple of months after the expedition. And there were many, many errors in that, just not just about me. In fact, he claimed to have had, in that article, claimed to have had a conversation with the person who actually had already died. He was the one who uh, walked off the edge. So the author said that he had a conversation with a person that was known to have been deceased. And this got into publication. So this is one example of many that were factually incorrect. And a a lot of those facts were changed, uh, or not facts, a lot of those errors were changed for the the publication of the book. But the, the venom that he spewed for me was not. And, um, there was then, and, and still is to some extent, but now people are much more media savvy that just because something's published between two covers doesn't mean it's true. Like we've been fed a lot of misinformation by people who have ulterior motives. And these examples are in front of us every single day. So it was for me back then difficult to refute and And anyway, it's very hard to have a conversation when you're in a defensive position from the get-go. You know, it's like, have you stopped beating your wife lately? Like, where do you start with that? Mm. (laughs) You know, you're already in the the weak position. So so I got smeared socially. I I was, my social reputation was immolated. My credibility as a writer, as a climber, as a spokesperson, these were the ways that I was making my living, were ended. And worse than that, it was constant fodder for the press. I was 
there were people, uh, there were photographers hiding in the bushes outside my apartment. I lived in Manhattan at the time, and every time I would go out, or many times when I would go out, there would be pictures that I would inevitably show up as an example of how careless and unfeeling that I was that I could go out under the circumstances and that I should be home under feeling guilt and shame for this. So it was an extremely difficult time. It was the most difficult time in my life. It had a big impact on my son. He was 14 or 15 years old at the time. He suffered terribly in school. He was, you know, the the mothers would ask him, how does it feel to have your mother having done this terrible thing, which is uh, a lot to put on a child. So he decided to move out. And when my, uh, and I got hit with divorce papers from my uh, husband of 17 years also. So it was like the whole world came crashing down. So I was instantly in an empty nest by myself. And I sunk into a very, very deep depression. For two years, I was lived in my pajamas and watched the Starfield simulation screensaver on my lap, on my desktop computer, wow. which turns out not to be such a bad meditative device. <laughs> Sandy's story, which she shared publicly for the first time during the Harvest event in Kaplankaya, deeply moved the attendees. I think it was a very courageous story, especially in this moment of fake news. You know, I think these stories are going to happen more and more because there's so many people's lives are being upturned by people taking advantage of the airwaves and maybe they're being presented in a, in a terrible light. And I think there's a lot of pain out there actually in this, in this theme. And probably, potentially, I'm kind of ad-libbing here, but it could be with AI, and a whole bunch of revenge, you know, we've got revenge porn, all the way from revenge porn to kind of deep fakes to, you know, a lot of the new stuff coming out just in the last few weeks, months, it's the tip of the iceberg. And so fast forward 20 years, 27 years or whatever she's had, you can imagine the amount of damage and the amount of unknowns and the amount. So I think people getting in touch with their stories, getting inspired to stay centered despite all the odds, I think it's an important narrative. Today, Sandy has a life and a death project. Her life project is a regenerative farm where she planted 650 palm grenade trees, almonds, olives, and a small vineyard. Regarding her death project, she's looking into the possibility of going into psychedelic assistance therapy for end of life with people considered too young to die or 30. After such a traumatic experience, I wanted to know how Sandy got back on her feet. First, I spent a decade, this was the early 2000s, as the owner of a vineyard. So I drank a lot. 
And um, looking back, you know, I did it like as a highbrow way. I had a vineyard and I was drinking really good wine and stuff like that and deluded <laughs> myself into thinking that this was elevated. And I elevated myself past these circumstances and got pulled myself out of the doldrums. But alcohol is not the solution to anything for me anyway. I don't identify as an alcoholic, but Anyway, so I dabbled in alcohol for a decade. And then in 2011 or 12, um, I discovered CrossFit. So CrossFit, if you are not familiar with it, is an activity that measures your success by quantifiable results. So the complete opposite of mountaineering. Um, it's how many burpees, push-ups, pull-ups, uh, how much weight can you yeah. put over your head? You know, it's super quantifiable and it's super objective. So I was like, great, here's a, here's a sport that I can do. I'm predisposed to doing it. A lot of it is endurance. Some of it is skill. So CrossFit pulled me out of it and I trained hard. And once I found out that there was a competition, I had never competed before. I don't consider myself a very good com com competitor because I've never, I had never done anything competitive. So CrossFit pulled me out of it initially, but then I, in 2013 was introduced for the first time in my life to psychedelics Ayahuasca was my gateway drug. Ayahuasca to help a friend who was a Marine that was suffering from PTSD and had heard that ayahuasca uh, was helping people and he needed somebody to hold his hand. So I, so I went to the ayahuasca ceremony with him and I actually have a kind of funny story about my first ayahuasca experience because I was just there, to, you know, I didn't really think that I had any issues because I had overcome them with CrossFit and I, you know, was back on my feet and feeling very strong physically. And I was just there to hold his hand. So the first ayahuasca circle that we attended together was one that asked everyone to share around the circle what their greatest fears were. And so people would answer around the circle, they would raise their hand and, you know, my mother, heartbreak, men, the Marine said the ghosts of people that I saw die. And when it came my turn to answer my biggest fears, I raised my hand and said, Olympic weightlifting, because it was the thing I was afraid of doing in CrossFit. <laughs> Super evolved, right? <laughs> Not hiding. <laughs> I really made some progress. <laughs> so... so we continued in this circle for about 10 months. And, you know, I later learned, I soon learned with ayahuasca that you can set your intentions with these things, but they do what they need to do for you. And so after 10, 12 circles together, I was right there front and center. Heartbreak, men, my mother and the ghosts. So it's also worth noting that when I qualified for the CrossFit Games, Olympic weightlifting had actually been a fear of mine. I was deathly afraid of the Olympic barbell going over my head. And without being able to do that, I never could qualify for the CrossFit Games. Oh. 
But I did qualify for the CrossFit Games, and I actually held a record for Olympic weightlifting. Wow! So unwittingly, okay. ayahuasca <laughs> so took it, care it of helped. that too. It <laughs> and which advice would you give to someone experiencing a social death, like you mentioned? Yeah, what advice? Oof. Well, try the Starfield simulation for a little while. <laughs> Because there is meditation in it, but like <laughs> anything, like any practice, don't let it start to consume you. Yeah. <laughs> so contemplation is important. Fortunately, now the naysayers, people understand like that there is an incentive, there's a motive. I mean, we've just seen it with big pharma and with, you know, the military industrial complex. Like we all know that there's other, other capital forces at, at work and these influence are, you know, the, the, the stories that are told about things in general and about us. So I think the way to face adversity and, and now more and more people are going to be trolled. I mean, you know, that that's, Basically, what it amounts to is I was, you know, I was trolled back in the day before there was yeah. a word, a word yeah. of trolling. You mm -hmm. know, it was two years before Monica Lewinsky, who may have been, you know, the original troll. I'll give it to her. She had it a lot worse <laughs> than I did. But now I think it's um, fortunately people are wiser to the possibilities of other people making things up to suit their own mythology, to, to make themselves their own egos, their own masks, feel vindicated and right. It's the harvest of the day, question I'm asking to every guest of this podcast. Uh, if there is one thing that gives you hope, what is it? Well, oh boy, you know, hope's a difficult thing for me. I have to, t I'm going to be perfectly candid with you because hope in some iterations is like a fancy dress up for fear. Okay. Like, I hope I make a million dollars. That's a manifestation of fear. Okay. It sounds optimistic, but it's not really, it's kind it's not good. That's a reflection of a shadow, a mask. So when hope is embodied, really embodied and lived into where you feel, let's say it has to do with alignment of values. So if you, if you want a million dollars, because having that is going to give you freedom, that's a value. So if you want, if you can embody what the value is, freedom, I hope I make a million dollars. Great. Hope away. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, uh, Sandy, for being in uh, this podcast of Harvestery, for being here with us and for sharing your story. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sandy. I hope you enjoyed this episode and Sandy Hill sharing for the first time on a podcast interview her side of the story how she suffered from being blamed for the disaster on Mount Everest in 1996 and her journey to get back on her feet and now wanting to help the others. If you did, please leave us a good review and follow us on Instagram Harvest Series. All of our podcasts are also filmed, so you can also visit youtube.com slash harvest series. 
Next episode will be with Dennis Oquera. He is a model and will share his story, the story of a kid raised in Uganda during a terrible civil war and who's now financing a school there. Until next time, 